0: We're here celebrating this morning as we do every Sunday morning because Jesus is alive. Every week we we get together and do that. This particular week we set aside to remember because it is as it was so, so so many years ago, nearly 2,000 years ago, the morning that the tomb was found empty. Jesus is alive and for all who believe in him, for all who trust him, death is dead. We just read it just a second ago. Oh, death Where is your victory, O death? Where is your sting? Because of Jesus, it is dead. It has no power for anyone who believes in Him. And just imagine how drastically it has changed the lives of people since that day that they first found the tomb empty. 2,000 years ago, before the sun had come up, women were gathered anticipating treating Jesus' body with honor. They were excited. They were anticipating getting to the tomb and and finishing the burial rites that had been done in such haste on Friday afternoon. Before the sun had gone down, he was wrapped quickly. He was placed in a borrowed grave and they were looking forward to finishing the burial rites. You remember what they found when they walked up into into the, the, the place where the tomb was? They walk up into the garden and the stone is rolled back and the The tomb is gaping wide, and Jesus is nowhere to be found. I think, I I can just imagine the fear and frustration they felt. They knew Roman guards had been placed there. What was running through their mind, and angels appear and tell them that He is no longer there. He is risen. And things change for them in that moment. And then, they see Him. Can you imagine, can you imagine the, the elation that bubbles up from within? Can you feel the excitement as they ran to him and they, and they grabbed him and they wanted to hug him and hold his feet? He's like, no, no. Go and tell my people that I'm a rise. Go, go and tell my followers, my apostles that I am alive. And they do. And there's a there's there's one of the the moments when Mary Magdalene meets Peter and John and tells them that his body's gone. And they run to the grave. And John being younger, maybe a little more fit, Peter maybe maybe Peter looked like me, you know. Peter was a little slower, probably kind of jogged to the tomb, but John flat out runs, beats Peter to the tomb and looks inside and sees the grave clothes laying on the ground and just imagining what has gone on and thinking about what has gone on. Peter in true Peter fashion, when he gets there, he doesn't wait for permission. He doesn't ask anybody if it's all right. He runs into the tomb and he looks and he sees the grave clothes discarded and the face cloth that had been upon your Savior's face folded neatly. Because it hadn't been tomb raiders. It hadn't been people stealing and robbing his body. He had risen. He had taken time to fold that cloth and place it where he lay as he went out. And then, they left, thinking, pondering, wondering, believing. But then, they saw him. And those men who had cowered behind closed doors, in houses, hiding in the dark, became men who had proclaimed the glories of the risen Savior to the uttermost, beginning in Jerusalem, going into Samaria, spreading to the uttermost, because their lives had drastically changed because Jesus was and is alive. So if you've been here, you know that we've been really building towards this moment. We've been in this mini-series focusing, reading from an Old Testament passage and thinking about and seeing it fulfilled in the New Testament and realizing the importance of the resurrection in our life. The importance of the resurrection for our Scripture. Because if the resurrection is removed, if Jesus is still dead, the Scripture doesn't do us any good. Paul talked about that in 1 Corinthians 15 that we're still in our sin. There's no hope. In fact, that's the next piece of the resurrection that we studied. Is that It gave us hope for the future. It gave us a, something to look forward to. Some, some distant moment that we know He is going to return. He's going to come back and get us. And, and, and there's going to be a day when His victory is certain. And the things that we look forward to are going to be things that we grasp hold of. And that we make ours. And then last week we looked at The fact that it's not just some distant moment that we have confidence in. It's our every day that we can have assurance and confidence in. Because Jesus is alive, we can be certain today that there is nothing that can defeat us. We can sing the songs that we sang this morning with, with, with confidence, with assurance. We can speak to people about the gospel of Jesus Christ because he is alive. But it's not just our emotional health. It's not just our attitude. It's not our inner well-being simply that the resurrection speaks to. Those are important. they great. I don't want to take away from them. But because Jesus is alive, there are implications for our day-to-day life. What we do, how we live, how we walk, what we engage in and what we decide to walk away from. You see, the reality is, is that we now live every day, every day in the light of Easter. Every day in the light of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it has implications for every moment of your day. It means something to you. So that's what we're going to study today. That's the point of the sermon is, and the point of this message as we focus this Easter morning, not just on a resurrection that means something when, not just something that just gives us a, a warm, fuzzy feeling now, but a resurrection that means I'm going to live and be changed and walk in a new way, just like the apostles, just like those women who first found the, the tomb empty. Now, if you've been here, you know we've been doing that from an Old Testament passage in a New Testament. It's not really going to be any different. We're going to be in Acts chapter 8. If you've got a Bible, you can go ahead and turn there. And I would encourage you, uh, if you're flipping pages in a Bible like like I have, I, like, you know, the, you're not punching buttons on a on one of those newfangled contraptions, then I would encourage you to go ahead and stick your finger in Isaiah 53 so that when we reference it later, you'll be able to flip over and kind of take a look at it. Um this verses will be on the screen. We're going to be reading it and begin reading in Acts chapter 8, verse 26. <clears throat> and just let's read, we'll see uh, what, what what the Lord has for us. One textual note, let me make this at the beginning. I did this in the middle of the sermon during the first or during the middle of the reading. I think it'll be better if I tell you now. In Acts chapter twenty-eight or twenty or Acts chapter eight, I'm sorry, verse twenty-six through thirty-nine is where we're going to be reading. Verse 37 is not in the original manuscripts. So the oldest, most accurate manuscripts that we can find, verse 37 is not there. We don't know that it didn't happen. Historically, what he says in verse 37 could have really happened, but as they find new and, and more accurate manuscripts, older manuscripts, they recognize they, they need to be honest and true to what the original said. So if you're reading in an ESV or one of the more uh, 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 current translations, probably you're going to have a footnote in the bottom of your Bible. I'm not trying to take away from Scripture. I'm trying to build confidence in our translations. They're striving hard to give us what we, uh, what was originally written. I will make reference to it because I do think it, it, uh, it, it has some bearing on what went on. But it is a, a, a tradition, and we don't necessarily want to build doctrine out of it. So, anyway, 826 through 39. Now, an angel of the Lord said to Philip... Rise and go south. Go toward the south to to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and he went. That's actually kind of... That's what you'd expect, right? He rose and he went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship. And he was now returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you're reading? And he said, How can I? You ever felt like that? You ever been reading the Bible? i am not going to understand? How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come and sit with him. Now the passage of Scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep... He was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shears, is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who could describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And just so you know, that is a passage out of Isaiah 53. And then he says, and, and then it says, And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom I ask you, does the prophet say this about himself or someone else? And went on his way rejoicing. You see, what we've seen already, what we've talked about to this point already, are lives that were drastically changed because Jesus is alive. Women who found the tomb empty went telling people that their their Savior, that their that their Messiah was alive. And 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 at first that people didn't believe them, but their lives were changed. They stood on it, they promoted it, they they encouraged people to believe it. The apostles, they saw him, and their lives were changed, drastically changed. And and, and that is the That's the the process by which we see it happen over and over and over. The testimony of Scripture is that lives change. People change what they do, how they think, how they act, how they decide to do different things. It changes because of the risen Lord. And it's no different for our two characters in this moment, in this story. Philip. Philip was a—he was just a regular guy, probably a Greek guy, a Grecian Jew. He spoke Greek. He had a—he had a Grecian name. He was living in Jerusalem, and, and and somehow, maybe he'd witnessed Jesus. Maybe he'd seen Jesus do certain things. Man, we, we don't exactly know. We don't know a whole lot about his history before he was raised up as a deacon, one of the seven chosen to help the apostles. The apostles were were striving to focus on ministry of the word and the and prayer and. There were some hungry people that needed to be fed. There was physical ministry that needed to be done, and they just couldn't do it. So they began to share the leadership, and they sh- began to share the responsibility for one another. And so they say, bring us b- bring seven people who are mature, who have demonstration of the Spirit in their life. Bring them to us. We'll, we'll take care of this. And, and so that's what happened. They install these guys. They, they put them over people, and, and, the, and they serve and do physical ministry. And, and Philip becomes a deacon. So what had happened in his life already to this point was drastically different than probably what was happening before he had believed in Jesus. He wasn't a deacon because he was a good Jew. He was a deacon because he had demonstrated the, the, the fruits of the Spirit. The evidence of God's hand was on him. Because he had believed in the risen Savior. But, it, but, but see, that's just the beginning. I mean, certainly his life had changed. But then, then the Jews began to persecute the Christians they to begin to, to beat them and kill them and, and jail them. Paul, or it used to be Saul, was one of the ones that was, was big into that. I mean, he was a promoter of that. And, and, and so they were pursuing Christians. And, and there's this point in, in, the, in the beginning of the church in Jerusalem that, um, the, that one of those seven that was chosen to help the apostles was stoned. And everybody's watching on. And from that moment, the church is scattered. And they, they endure great persecution. But instead of running and hiding and instead of jumping back into the the houses and and hiding in the dark behind closed doors, Philip doesn't denounce Jesus. He leaves his home. He leaves his family. And he goes to a place that good Jews just didn't go. He went to Samaria. You know what he did when he was in Samaria? Persecution wasn't going to stop him. It says, if you read Acts chapter 8 all the way through, you, it, it says that he went there and he preached the gospel. Do You know what he did once he was taken away from the Ethiopian? He went and he preached the gospel. You see, the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ was so real to him, so powerful to him, that his whole life had changed. Just imagine sitting there in Samaria being used mightily of God. Do you, have you been used mightily of God? Have you have you ever been used seeing god work and, he, and, and and he say hey go go over here go do this instead uh, lord you know i'm i'm being pretty useful right here i found a home people are responding i'm seeing fruit are you sure you want me to leave that's we we, we don't have any indication that's what he did his life was drastically different because he had met the risen lord the eunuch he was ethiopian that means that he was not jewish by birth he probably was not he was probably a proselyte had come somehow to believe and trust and and practice the jewish tradition a proselyte he would have been baptized into the jewish tradition and so we don't know how often he did it we don't know When he did it, we just know that ultimately he he made a trip to Jerusalem. I don't know if this is his first one or his hundredth one. But he made a trip to Jerusalem he wanted to worship at the temple and so he did and he's on his way home. And his whole belief structure is about to be changed. And his whole life is about to be set right side up. All because he's about to be introduced to the risen Savior. Just consider what his day looked like. Riding in that Chariot reading the scripture of the God that he had just left worshiping at the temple. And he's got questions that he can't get answered. He's dealing with confusion. He's not certain. He doesn't know exactly what he's reading. And that day closes not with him in confusion. But with him rejoicing, his life was forever changed because he'd met the risen Savior. We don't know what happened next. We we don't know what happened to him when he got back to the palace. But we know in that moment that the indication is is that his life would be forever changed. The path would be forever changed. That is the testimony of Scripture, that when people come to know that Jesus is no longer dead in the ground, the tomb is empty, his cross is empty, and now his throne is occupied, their lives change. Life is different. What we do, how we act, it's different. Let's just consider the words that, that, that the Ethiopian would have been looking at. In Isaiah 53, flip over there just real fast. We won't read the whole thing through. I'm just going to highlight a few points. But but, but in verses 3 through 9, we begin to see the man of sorrow's suffering. We begin to see the weight that he carried. And if you were here the other night on Good Friday, this is what we focused on. This is what we dealt with. And so here's this Ethiopian reading these verses, reading these words, and he's confused and he's not knowing what's happening. He doesn't know how to interpret it. He doesn't know what to think about it. Because he's reading about this man, this this individual, this person, who in verse 3 is despised and rejected by men. A man who is acquainted with grief. A man in verse 4 who bore our sorrows. In verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. It's his wounds that heal us. This man, we, we, we see it over and over and over. Suffering. Suffering. And we see that he didn't deserve what he was getting, but he was doing it in the place of others. The one suffering for the many. The one oppressed and afflicted that the many wouldn't have to be. The one judged and stricken that the many wouldn't have to be. The one buried with the wicked. That we would not have to be treated As the wicked. The one suffering in the place of many. And then, in the midst of all of that, in the midst of this this, this man who has suffered greatly, is the hope that's promoted at the very end. You see, Isaiah 53 isn't all just gloom. Isaiah 53 is full of hope. Because at the very end, in verse 10... We turn and we begin to see the eyes, the prophecy of Isaiah begin to point to the resurrection and the victory that comes with Jesus. Verse 10, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. Even though he has died, even though he has been buried with the wicked, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, when he does the work of the cross, when he does what he's supposed to do, then he will see his offspring. He will be the firstborn among many brothers. He will, he will have a bride that, that He will be satisfied with. Verse 11, Out of the anguish of His soul, He shall see and be satisfied for the joy set before Him. For the joy, the, the satisfaction, the pure, the pure happiness that's the set before Him. what is before Him, He endures the cross. Verse 12, He shall divide the spoil With the strong death just looked like defeat. But it couldn't hold him. It had no power over him. This was his victory. And because he is alive, he has an inheritance now that he is sharing with his people. The victories of war are ours because he first died and then he rose. And just imagine... As this eunuch is sitting and listening and reading and thinking and contemplating, it's really easy for you and me to sit here and point back and think back on that moment. But he's brought to this place where he asks this question. This one powerful, powerful question. and maybe a question that we should all ask. About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? Himself or someone else? About who? About whom does this point to? What's the Bible for? Is it so that you can find your way out of trouble? Is it so that you can feel good about what you do? Is it so that you can justify yourself? Is it so that you can have a rule book to follow and and present yourself cleansed before God? About who have the prophets written? The whole of the book points to Jesus. And from this passage, it says, Philip, from this passage, Isaiah 53 began to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this eunuch's life was immediately and ultimately changed. Because he came to know a man who didn't just suffer. But he came to know the God that rose. The verse I told you in verse 37 is kind of removed. And we know he believed ultimately in accordance with the text because he wants to act on what he's come to learn. I mean, he wants to do something about it. The text in in verse 37, I'm going to share it with you. It's a tradition, and we believe that it had become a a proclamation that people would use before they were baptized. And we believe that somewhere in the 2nd century, people like Irenaeus and and other church fathers had quoted it so often that some scribe had decided somewhere, somewhere along the 150s to begin inserting it here because they felt like the eunuch needed his voice. And it may be that he said these words, we just don't know. But we see in the text that he believed. And so I want to share with you, he he says, I want to be baptized. Hey, here's water. I believe I want to be baptized. I want to do something about it. And Philip said, if you believe in your heart, you may. What we've just done, it's it's just a bath if you don't have faith. It, It doesn't mean anything. But because Jesus is alive and you've trusted in Him, it becomes something important. It becomes something valuable, symbolic. And he replied, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And so Philip says, let's go baptize you, brother. And they go into the water. He is baptized and he leaves rejoicing. His life and the direction of it was changed. And the same thing continues to happen today. Because Jesus is alive, there is no longer any reason to live like we are dead. Do you get that? Do you hear that? Because Jesus is alive. There is no longer any reason to live like we are dead. There's no longer to continue putting on the old clothes, the old man, and and walking around in the tattered filth of this world. There's no longer any reason to continue doing the things that we used to do because Jesus is alive. We can live like we are living. I hope, I pray, you feel that swelling up inside your soul. Jesus is alive. He has made us alive because of that. We no longer have to live like we're dead. Paul, I kind of alluded to it, Paul references the old man, and and he uses this imagery that, that, that makes us look at it in terms of putting on old clothes instead of new clothes, putting on the new man and taking off the old man. And 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 you guys know, I mean, probably half of you have T-shirts that your wives would love for you to get rid of. They've got holes in them. Maybe they've been through the wash too many times and you can kind of see through them and it's, you still wear them in public. I do. And my my wife loves me for it. I promise you. Ask me. I'll tell you. Maybe you got an old pair of shoes, an old pair of jeans. Oh, it's just so comfortable. It's just so comfortable. Because we are alive, we have been given new clothes. Jesus went shopping for you and gave you what you couldn't get for yourself. Put on that three-piece suit. Put on that, that, that evening gown and wear the beauty of the resurrection. Walk in it. Live in it. Celebrate the rest of your days because of it. Because Jesus is alive. There is no longer any reason to live like we are dead. Let me give you four practical points. We'll push through them quickly. I know you're thinking, oh man, four. Four practical points. I know, I th- I know what you're thinking. Hey, we're alive. We don't have to think like that anymore. <laughs> See, I'm using it against you already. Four practical points that, that I think will help you kind of put this into practice. Life in light of the resurrection. Starts with and stays focused on Jesus. Did you see it in the text? Who was, who was Philip preaching? Jesus. Well, wh- why was he there? Jesus. Who did the eunuch learn to believe in? Jesus. Every day, from here on out, from the moment you begin to believe, it is about Jesus. And 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 as we as we come to that, and as we learn to walk in that, and as we learn to to, to to find that practice in our life, we begin to see that many of the questions we ask lose their power. I don't I don't want you to hear me saying that you are always gonna have every answer you want. I mean, consider Philip for just a moment. Philip is sitting in, at, at home in his new home in Samaria, and 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 the angel of the Lord shows up and says, Go south to a street near Gaza. Uh, What's the address? Who am I looking for? He got very few details. He didn't get all of his questions answered. What I'm saying is, though, that as we walk and recognize that Jesus is the center, that Jesus is the most important, many of the questions we ask, they lose their power. It's not that we don't ask them. It's just that that we recognize they're not quite as necessary. It's just unfortunate that we don't always live this way. It's unfortunate that we don't always put him first. and We prioritize our lives around things like family, work, where we're going to live, and how we're going to eat, and what food to eat or not eat. And I'm not saying those are bad things. I think they're actually good things, very necessary. You've got to decide to eat sometime, right? You've got to live in a house. I mean, you don't have to, I guess. You can live outside of a house, but that's a difficult way to go. If you're going to be productive in the world, a man has to work if he's going to eat. I mean, That's a biblical principle. See, it's not that those things aren't important. They're just not most important. Those things leave you empty. They leave you fruitless. They leave you wanting if you don't get Jesus first. If He doesn't affect every one of those things, if you don't make the decisions of your day based upon who you are because of the risen Jesus, then you might be prioritizing things incorrectly. Every day of the life of of those of us that are living, is lived in the knowledge of the power, presence, and purpose of Jesus. But how? How in the world can you know that? How can you know what His purpose is? How can you know? How are you gonna? How are you gonna even begin to develop this? How are you going to learn to walk in this? I think it starts right where the eunuch started. Maybe not exactly Isaiah 53, but who is this book written about? It points us to Jesus. Every day, this should be the thing we feast from first. With the greatest amount of attention and priority. But often it's the thing we turn to last. If we turn to it at all see, dead people don't read Scripture. But we're alive. And the Word means something. Because we're alive. Life, in the light of the resurrection, demands obedience to Jesus and the Holy Spirit. The angel of the Lord often depicts the uh, uh, Jesus. It, we, we don't know exactly. The angel of the Lord comes to Philip, tells him to go, and then later the Spirit speaks to him. And he responds in both cases. He obeys. The Ethiopian, after hearing and believing the good news of Jesus, he wanted to do exactly what Jesus had commanded his followers to do. What did he see? He's like, hey, there's some water. It may just be a puddle. But I bet you can get me under it. It was enough that they had to go down into it. Hey, how about I just get baptized right here? This, is, this looks great. He was excited about obedience. He's he excited about following the example of his Savior. We try so hard at times. To, to wrap the things of God into our little boxes and to squish them down into these places that we can kind of control them and 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 they can kind of be under our authority. Right? But well, that's not what God calls us to. Dead people live in sin. Living people don't have to. Paul talks about this in Galatians 5. I'll just read it to you. Listen closely. Galatians 5, 19 through 21. Now the works of the flesh are evident. They're obvious. You don't have to wonder. If you have something like this in your life, what I'm about to read you, it's because you are not living like a living person. You are living like a dead person. You are still putting on the old clothes. Works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger. Whoa. Does that really go there with sexual immorality? Hmm. Rivalries, dissension, division, divisions. Well, there's division. Envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, he says. Those are the works of the flesh. If if they are in your life, it's because in some way you are feeding and living as an old man wearing old clothes. Put on your evening gown, put on your three-piece suit, and walk in the light of the resurrection. Life in the light is different. It will look different and it will bear different results. He goes on to say that walking in the light, walking in the Spirit, produces the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. You know why there needs to be no law against those things? Because those are the things of God. They are things that are good and, and amazing and awe-inspiring. They are the things that we enjoy about him that he does in us that might reflect from us. That is what it looks like to put on flesh, to become someone who loves others, to become someone who walks in joy. To put on the new clothes, to live in light of the resurrection. Life in the light of the resurrection always gives us reason to rejoice. I'm not saying all your problems are solved. I don't think that eunuch's problems all I mean he's a eunuch for crying out loud. All of his problems are not solved but he leaves rejoicing. he leaves rejoicing. Just consider the broader context of the suffering that Christians were enduring. The reason Philip was in Samaria, the reason Philip was leaving Samaria, was because he couldn't be in Jerusalem. Because they had been run off. They were suffering. Imagine the the, the trip that he had to take. Just think about that for just a minute. He's in Samaria. And he's going to Gaza. It may be about a hundred miles. And he didn't go catch a greyhound. He probably walked. And he probably had to go through Jerusalem, the place where they were killing and arresting Christians. He probably had to go through Jerusalem to get there. It probably took him three or four days. I find it inconvenient when I'm at home to go to the store. It's the truth. We get home, me and Amy, we'll get home. Amy and I. Maybe it sounds more proper. Get home. The last thing we want to do is get back out again. We were talking about going to have dinner one night. And she was wanting to eat dinner somewhere on the southeast side of town. I don't remember where it was. It's not really important, but we live on the southwest side. You know, it's like about seven miles from one side of Springfield to the other. I don't really want to. It's too far. Philip, hearing the angel of the Lord, he arose and he went. He went. And when he got there and he heard the Spirit say, there's the man, he ran to him. Ran to him. I'm not saying this life is easy or doesn't come with some level of demand. But as long as we can look at Jesus, we have reason to rejoice. Paul, speaking to the Philippians, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Jesus fulfills every one of those You need something to think about. You need to be able to lift your head up in the midst of the weight of the storm of your life. Look at Jesus. Because He is true, He is honorable, He is just, He is pure, He is lovely and commendable. He is excellent. Jesus is worth rejoicing in. And because we are alive we will always have him as a reason to rejoice. You know how you get there? You know how you get to be able to practice this on a day-in, day-out basis? Who's this about? About whom are the prophets speaking? Oh, and by the way, He gave you his spirit that you might hear and you might be led into truth that you might be able to see Jesus so that you might rejoice. And finally, life in the light of the resurrection is never, never lived in isolation. It's not quite as easy to see demonstrated in this passage but I think it's still there, and I think, it's, I, I think it's evident enough that I think it's worth making a point out of. Where would the eunuch be if Philip hadn't gone? It's okay. Where would Philip be if the eunuch, or, or I'm sorry, where would the eunuch be if Philip hadn't gone? He'd have been asking questions, not getting any answers. You see, he needed somebody. When when Philip was in Samaria and he was preaching and teaching the Gospel, God was doing big things. And you know who comes to check up on that? You can go back and read it in Acts 8. Peter and John. They came to make sure that the, the message was accurate and that God was really at work. And they prayed for these people and they received the Spirit of God. The the life in the light of the resurrection is never lived in isolation. We need one another. We need people who teach us. Whether you realize it or not, you need me. I feel needed. But you know what? Other people need you. Not just to receive teaching, but to turn around and give teaching. You have the message because you have been made alive. People need to hear your words given to them to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. You need to be taught, but you need to be teaching. There's not one of us who do not hold the message of life. And maybe it's not your gifting or God's purpose for you to stand and and preach to a church, but maybe, probably, there's one. Or two, or three, or four that He's put in your life to be taught by you. We need people to show us God's grace. We desperately need God's grace. We definitely need to get it from other people because God's given it to them. But we need to be showing God's grace. We need people to love us like Jesus has loved us so that we can experience it in real and tangible ways. But you need to be loving people like Jesus has loved you. Where would the eunuch be? Let's make it a little more personal. Where would you be? If your Philip hadn't come along to tell you, to show you God's grace and to love you. And here's the beauty of this. You, as you turn and give it away, you will find that you can never give away so much that you would ever run out. You will never exhaust the grace and the love of God that He has poured out for you in Jesus Christ and He has made certain for you in His resurrection. You will never come to a place where you can't have an experience more. As we walk in it and as we give it away, we will find how deep and how wide and how, how the, the width and the breadth and the heights and the depths of His love for us. You will find it. And you will find that it will never, that well will never run dry. But you will never experience that if all you do is seek to receive it. Life in the light of the resurrection is never lived in isolation. To live in light of the resurrection, we need Jesus. We need His Spirit. We need His Word. We need to be praying. We need His people. Let's pray.